Amen. All right, I'm going to read chapter 10 of Hebrews. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, and then we're going to kind of go line by line or verse by verse and try to see where we've seen this before. And I just, that's that's the whole point of today, is just trying to see where we've seen it before. Okay? Nice and easy. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by this, the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who are who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Read there, be... Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by, the, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, all, offer, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for saying, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I hope my prayer is that you've heard all these things talked about already in this class. If you haven't been in with us this whole time, is they all have been repeated. There's only one thing that's new, and it's the, a quotation from Psalm 40. And that one thing is new is not really anything new, but it's just teasing out what already has been talked about in chapter 9, uh, about Christ being the only sacrifice necessary and needed, okay, for sin. So here's what I want to do. We have these first four verses. Um, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's just verse one. So uh, here's what I want to do. I want... Um, this half of the, I don't have a half of a room. Um, I did last week. Last week was really messed up. Like, it was really funny to watch, but then very odd in every other way. What? 
Yeah, we're, we're spread out today. Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. No half of the room. I want you to go back through Hebrews, and I want you to find um, how many times it talks about shadow. Yes, chapter 1 to chapter 9. So um, I would do a skim tactic uh, and just look for the word shadow. Shadow of a things to come. Um, another place you can go if you don't want to look up shadow is where the um, consciousness of sins it's at the end of chapter verse 2 consciousness of sins where is that in Hebrews I want you guys to look back through Hebrews and tell me where those two things are verse number 1 shadow number 2 consciousness of sins you may not have those exact words but something like it okay um, and then when you found one, just look at me. Found one, found found one, found one. I'm assuming you found all of them. Yeah, it's called Google. Google. Just did a search. I'm a, I am a fan of paper Bibles, by the way, because it makes you remember things a little better <laughs> uh, by turning pages and all that stuff. What? Babies don't like paper Bibles. Babies really love tape paper Bibles. And they, they like to crunch papers, especially these papers, because they do crunch so well. <laughs> All right. Uh, where did you guys find a mention of shadow? At the very beginning. Okay. Okay, where, where are you? Can you give me an address? Oh, hold on. Oh, yes. Um, we're trying to find other places in Hebrews that have shadow. A Hebrews 8, 5. Thank you. That's We have lots of uh, copy and shadow. Okay, so we have this idea of the priests are ordering, are offering gifts according to the law. And they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, right? We talked about this back when I was going through chapter 8, like for three weeks. So um, that copy and shadow of the heavenly things is very um, not platonic. Does anybody know what I mean by that? Does anybody know who Plato was? Who, who was Plato? He was a philosopher. When did he live? Yeah, like, like I'm not exactly sure on my dates, but it's between 400 and 200. What? 300? Yeah, I was thinking 400s, 200s, covering all my bases. BC. BC. So 300 years before Christ, and then you have this being written somewhere in the uh, 60s, if I were to guess. Have a good, you know, guess for that. You have, and so we have these, this idea of, Plato, people would take this idea of Plato and try to read it into here. Does anybody know what I mean by that? Platonic. Okay. You're the one that shook your head. Hmm. Oh, like a shadow, like, yeah, and everything. So the way that most people go through this in philosophy class, I'm not trying to bore you here. I'm actually trying to give you what this is not talking about. So, in philosophy class, they say, what is this? And they hold it up in front of you, act like this is a chair. It's a chair. 
Plato would say it's not a chair. It's your, yes, it's your conception of a chair. And technically, it's only a copy and a shadow of the perfect kind of chair in heaven. Okay? Do you hear how this is similar? Right? The, the priests are, hop, are, are, are thinking about this as copies and shadows. They're serving copies and shadows. Right? Offering things, cleansing things as copies and shadows. This is not that copy and shadow. Where does this copy and shadow language come from? Your Bible should actually have like a little footnote on uh, or a little address back to the Old Testament. Anybody know? Anybody have it? Hey, Exodus twenty-five forty. Can you read it for me? When did Exodus happen? Does anybody have like a ballpark? Fourteen okay, BC. So four, let's say fourteen hundreds BC, and Plato lived in three hundred BC. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's common date. That's why I say 1400s. I don't, I don't, they didn't use the same Julian calendar and we can't, we don't use this, we don't use Julian calendar anymore. What am I saying? Um, only in the military do we use Julian time dates for anything. Uh, so dumb. Anyway, the, uh, where, where was I? So my, my whole point is that this comes from somewhere way before, 1100 years before Plato showed up. Okay. And before Plato decided talking about the copies in the heavens, or copies on the earth that are in the heavens, a lot of this comes down to everything here is evil and a shadow. Everything up there is perfect and without blemish. Um, it's very similar. I mean, it can be very confusing. And if you're talking to somebody who has any philosophy, they can run circles around you and just make you more and more confused. And think like, oh, well, you know, all we do is actually see premonitions. This is just the matrix. Um, have you heard these things before? I don't know. I have. I've had agnostic friends be like, well, we don't really live in reality. It's just a computer program. There is no proof. That's the part of it. That's part of it, right? Um, but a lot of this is comes together in, in just confusion. It just creates confusion. But we have, well, oh yeah, there, every other Confucius. Confu <laughs> Sorry, Rex is making it funny. Um, all I have to say is that this comes from Exodus when the law was given to Israel. It does not come from anywhere else. All right. And God actually says, make it after according to the pattern that I showed you. Right. He doesn't. And he gives Moses a pattern of the tabernacle, a pattern of the setup of all these things. And so they've been serving this, serving in this copy and shadow of a heavenly thing, of a perfect temple a perfect tabernacle, a perfect palace, a perfect, you, you name it. This is God's perfect heavenly dwelling. Now, where this heavenly dwelling was made initially on earth um, or uh, uh, something similar to it, does anybody know where, what I'm talking about? Just Eden. The Garden of Eden is set up much like a temple or a tabernacle. There are things to, that you have to do. There are like cultivate and keep, right? What, what are all the things that Adam has to do that God tells him to do in um, Genesis 2? 
He names things, absolutely. What else does he do? He has to work, right? Before fall, he has to work. Hear that, everybody. Pre-fall, pre-Delivian, and you still have to work. It just hurt with us. Yes, that's very true. It was more fulfilling work, yes. What else did he do? He worked. What, what kind of work was it, is a better question. Worked the land for what purpose? Exercise dominion. And that dominion looks like expanding the borders of Eden, right? Drawing out what God has already done in this place, this particular place, the Garden of Eden, and expanding the borders of Eden out from the center. And so where, why do you think the fall, does everybody know what I mean by the fall? Okay, uh, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, why do you think that was such a such an offense to God outside of because he said so. He said, don't, he said, don't eat of the tree. That's, that's enough. That's enough to be bad. But why do you think this was so damaging to that temple and that garden and their way of life and all this stuff? Right. This is why you hear us say, uh, hear me particularly will say it, Johnny will say it in other ways. Um, like we, uh, Adam and Eve usurped the throne of God, seeking their own way to make their own place more satisfying to them. And they did it by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? They weren't supposed to eat of that tree. They wanted autonomy. That autonomy stopped the dominion, stopped the growth of the garden stopped the purif purification of the garden, stopped the work. Do you see the problem? God's like a command of not eating the tree of the tree of good and knowledge, good and evil was really just a copy. And they were just, so they were supposed to trust God, be satisfied in God enough to not go and try to eat of this tree. And then when they did, they ruined everything. And then all we could do from then on right? Because Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Who's standing in front of the garden? The cherubim, right? With a flaming sword so that no one can come back, right? He guards the path. No one can come back. And so Adam and Eve leave and they can't get back in. Nobody can get back in. Um, does this sound familiar? Like how the temple is set up? We've already talked about the temple. What stood between the people and the representation of God? In the inside of the temple. The veil with the cherubim on them, with swords, by the way. Um, and you have this, they, all this symbolism is to remind them of their sin, right? Everything is there to remind them of their sin and the holiness of God, which he requires. So the copy of the heavenly things is just there to remind them that they are, everything they touch becomes corrupt. Everything Adam and Eve have done has corrupted all of creation, okay? So there's a very deep meaning here. I don't want us to miss it, but he's making this point of since the law was but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. What is this shadow now? After we've explored what the what a copy and a shadow is according to secularism, what copy and a shadow is according to the Bible, what now is this um, shadow of good things to come. 
What is the true form? What is the shadow shadowing? I don't know how else to say, say that. Yeah, what is the shadow of? Which casts the shadow? What is casting the shadow? No? What? Go Sunday school, guys. Jesus. Thank you. Jesus now, but it's not like it's not like what we have heard recently in some places. I don't know if you watch The Chosen, but they have this line in there that God Jesus never says, and it's not plausible. I don't care what he says. That Jesus comes out in a rage. I don't know what he's I don't know what's actually happening. But he says, I am the law. What did if he was the law, then he would just be a copy and a shadow, right? Why, why would he ever be the law himself? But what did he come to do? Fulfill the law. Not just the Mosaic law, but all of the law, right? He came to fulfill the law. He did not become the law. and He's not the law itself. If you want to talk about in some like really tertiary way of how he, he's the word made flesh, then the law was given in word, right? But that's not what he's saying. Uh, that's not where that's coming from. And so no, I'm not flaming out the tro- chosen for that, but that comes from a, a book called the Book of Mormon, not the Bible. So um, the shadow of good things to come, What? so we have the shadow of good things to come is Jesus, but let's be more specific. What does Jesus actually bring us? Salvation. Um, he brings us two particular things within salvation. What are those things? Forgiveness of sins, verse 18. Imputed righteousness. So you cannot have salvation without your, for, your sins forgiven and righteousness applied. Okay? That's, this separates us from everybody else. Like you can get your sins forgiven by doing enough things and... and Islam and a whole bunch of other places, but you will never have righteousness applied to you, a foreign righteousness, right? Mormonism, Mormonism go back to there. They have the law. That they, they say, yes, my sins are forgiven, but they have nothing of imputed righteousness, nothing of imputed righteousness. So the shadow of good things to come is the forgiveness of sins and the application of righteousness to his people. So now I want to ask you this. In chapter 10, Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. What, how is this imputed righteousness and forgiveness actually accomplished? What's Hebrews' argument? And when you find it, oh, sacrifice, mm, sort of. Jesus' sacrifice, yes. Keep going, keep reading. You went too far. Uh, say that again. Remission, remission of sins. Oh, the takeaway sins. Yes. Okay. But that's first four. Is impossible for bloods and goats to take away sins. Keep. The question is: Is what had to happen for us to have salvation? Had to come in flesh. Had to suffer. This is true. But when he came, what did he do? Okay. Boom. Yes. 
and by a blood offering. There's the there's the sacrifice. Okay, so we're going to talk about this concept called that. That's exactly it. So it's verse seven. Behold, I have come to do your will. It was not sacrifices and offerings that you have desired, right? But a body that you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Does anybody know what psalm this is quoted from? 40. Psalm 40. If you want to, want to know about all of the things that salvation encompasses, Psalm 40 is huge. Um, for the New Testament writers. They just continually lean onto it. Psalm 40. So, go back to the question, what is it that Christ actually had to do? He had to do two things. He had to be active in his obedience, and he had to be passive in his obedience, okay? Active and passive obedience. Ready? Everybody ready? What does active obedience sound like? Doing the things that he's supposed to, what would those things be? Everything, which law? Everything required by the law. What law? God's law. Because the moral law is only part of the Mosaic law. So we've got to be careful about moral Mosaic law. And you gotta be, it's got to be more than the thing that would just get us to be Jews. It's got to be more than what it takes to become Jewish, which is do the law, right? It's got to be more than that. So does that make sense to everybody? If you've just fulfilled the Mosaic law and not the whole law of God, we'd only be just good Jews. All the law. Yes. Every one of them. Yes. All, every one of them. He fulfilled every law, not just the Mosaic law. So when you're walking around with tassels, on, um, at the Pharisees are walking around with tassels on, there's tassels are there to remind them of their sin, right? And, and the, the things that they have to do, um, or not do, but the things they should be thankful for, for what God has done. Okay? But it's, that's a passive thing. It's, it's not an active. They can't actually do anything to make themselves righteous. Putting tassels on their, think about how silly this is, putting tassels on the end of their robes does not make them righteous. Uh, fulfilling the Sabbath by only walking 100 yards does not make them righteous, right? It does not do anything. It just, it's, it's, it's a, a proving of obedience, but obedience to what is the question. Um, and so Christ had to be obedient to all the laws not just the Mosaic laws, not just um, don't prepare things on the Sabbath. He had, to, he, had to, he had to be fully committed and fulfilling of every law, not just the Mosaic law. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? The act of obedience of Christ is him making every, or fulfilling every single law of God. That is to do his will and to love him with all his heart, soul, and mind and strength, and to love his neighbor as, as himself. Okay, they all know this, right? That's Jews. They all know the two greatest commandments. But those two greatest commandments are only truncated into what they think the Mosaic law is, what Moses says. But in reality, it shows us everything that God desires, which is for us to love God 
and us to love people and do it in completeness. Let me ask you this. Do you completely love everybody that you come in contact with? Is it an active thing? Do you're like, you know what? I'm just going to decide to hate you right now. Is it, is it an active thing? Not usually. It's a passive thing. Why do you think that is? Inherently simple, yes. But what is it inside of us? Still, pride, selfishness. We think we're better than that person, right? Christ came and he had none of those. He had none of those feelings, none of those desires. He didn't think he was better than the Pharisees. He knew he was the son of God. And he didn't compare himself like, oh, I've done, my tassels are cleaner than yours. Look how blue they are. You know, he didn't do that, right? He, he just, he pointed out for righteousness sake what God wanted, right? He came and he did the will of God, which is to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love his neighbor as himself. It's to the nth degree, never with a thought or a desire or an emotion that was antithetical to that will. Can you imagine that? Do you go five minutes out of the day without thinking about that way? I have to, I've, I've been really congested um, for a, a couple of, for a couple of weeks. You know, I've been, was sick and now I'm just congested. It's really annoying. But I can tell you right now, congestion just reminds me of how frail I am and how much I hate being congested. Do you hear any thankfulness or gratefulness inside of that comment? No. I wasn't grateful. For, I'm not grateful for congestion. Are you grateful for congestion? But you know what I can learn from my congestion? What can I learn from sickness and frailty? Anybody want to throw it out there? Dependence. What else? Humbleness. Humility. Absolutely. What else? Hope. What else? His power. What else? There's lots of things. Patience. This is ongoing for three weeks. So patience, trusting in God's providence, right? And the fact that I'm not focusing my brain and my life on those things, all these good things that you've talked about, is exactly why I need Jesus. Because Jesus never had those thoughts. Even at the even in the garden, what does he say? What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross? Anybody want to recount? He cries out. Okay, and, and when we talk about this want, this want inside of him, what do you think that want is? The want, for, the want to avoid, let this pass cup from me. What, what is that want? He knows, he knows that he knows that the cup truly is. More than just a... Just dying. Yeah. It's... All those things that you and I have thought in our heads, all those things we have done to like defame uh, the, the love of God everywhere, God in its name everywhere, Jesus's name everywhere, just by desiring something that is different than what God's will is. That's what Christ 
experienced on the cross. He did not experience just pain and suffering. He did not want necessarily to be exposed to the full force of the wrath of God because he had never experienced any separation from him. Any separation at any level. Now, I'm not talking about, for those of you who care care about theological stuff, I'm not talking about the difference between uh, the, the people, the persons of the Trinity being split up. I'm not saying that ever happened. In fact, I'm saying it never happened. Um, but the potential of Jesus understanding the full weight and wrath of God outside of just knowing it, but actually experiencing it when he never had that experience is absolutely devastating. And yet he was actively obedient, right? Actively obedient. His passive obedience. Do you know what passive obedience might entail? We've kind of already talked about it, so yes, that's similar. We've kind of already talked about the passive obedience, the active obedience, doing the things correctly and desiring the will of God. The passive obedience is the suffering that it, it, um, on our behalf, yes, absolutely, that's part of it. The heart behind the obedience, we've already talked about it. He's already desired to do the will of God. He followed through with the will of God, even though he said, let this, path, this cup pass from me, right? It, it, and he, yet he did it anyway. So at the moment when he said that, he did not sin. There's actually this big stink right now. Um, the liberals are coming for us, conservatives. Most of you are conservatives in some level. And so the liberal theologians, the liberal pastors, the guys you see on Twitter, the most, the guys you see on Facebook and Instagram are saying that God, there's no way Jesus could have been fully obedient in every thought, deed, and desire. They need a new job. Thank you, Jared. He absolutely was fully in accordance with the will of God at all steps, praising and glorifying his name. That was his whole point of his existence and to bring you and I into the bride of Christ. Right? Everybody following me? We need both active and passive obedience of Christ. We do not have righteousness nor our sins forgiven if neither of, the, of one of those two things didn't happen. It, it's impossible. So when we look back at the text, you see that he's kind of arguing this way. Verse 8, he says this, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. And he parenthetically, I don't know if you guys have the parentheses there, he says, these are offered according to the law. But he adds, Behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first. The first set of law, right? To establish the second, the first covenant, the old covenant, to establish the second covenant, which we've already talked about in depth in, in chapter eight. But, so where's the crux of all, all of these verses? These first 18 verses, who can point me to the crux of these verses? Daniel, you got it? Verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Okay, and he continues. to What, what does he mean by that? Keep, I think it's actually further down. 11 through 14. If you, if, if you weren't familiar, uh, verses in the Bible were written after the Bible was written. This was just a letter. And so this whole paragraph, 
that is 11 to 14, what I would say 11 to 18 probably, that whole section is the point of this verse. Number one, he's the only priest who died once for all. And in that dying once for all, he was actively and passively obedient. And he only died once for all with a single sacrifice of sins, for sins. And that's evident because he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Okay, he sat down. His work is done. And now, if you remember Psalm 110, we talked about Psalm 110 um, a little bit. He kind of alludes back to Psalm 110 and says, until the day, waiting from that time, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. All right, what does that mean? He reigns forever. He reigns and we all see it, okay? Until his enemies, his second coming, that's where, that's where he's waiting for. He's trying to encourage them to wait for that second coming. For by a single offering, he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified. 14 is a, this whole, this whole section is great. And then you get into this other quotation. He was quoting from Psalm 40, and now he's quoting from, where is he currently quoting from now? Jeremiah. And so he brings back this, that whole Jeremiah 31 passage that we were looking at in chapter 8. He brings it back into this text to just reinforce the fact that without the forgiveness of sins, once for all, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see that? The priest had to stand every day and do the same sacrifices and offerings every day. Every time the day of atonement came, he did it again and again and again. Christ did it once, once for all. And that once for all sacrifice forgives yours and my sins for all time. That is the whole point of Christ's coming. Forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're going to get to the imputed righteousness of Christ as we tease out Hebrews a little bit more. <clears throat> but verse 18 just says it way better than I did. Where there is forgiveness of these, the sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me ask you this. Do you try to atone for your own sins? Yep. Okay. Tell me tell me what you mean. Okay. And that forgiveness is that is that um um, predicated on them saying you're forgiven. It'd be nice. But, but you as a redeemed man have already had that sin forgiven and it enables you to go and ask for forgiveness of that person and be reconciled with one another. You see how this works? What I mean, there's so many ways that we try to make up, atone for our sins. What's another way? Like when we wrong our, our, our kids, that's, that's definitely one way. What about in thoughts? That you, do you try to like make up for your own thoughts and desires sometimes? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I imagine that 
Oh, that is a great one, right? My sins, my desires, I'm not as bad as everybody else. So what do you do to try to make up for that? You're fooling yourself, right? But it's not to it's not to earn God's favor necessarily. But there are people that would say, I had this thought and now I gotta whip myself. Right? I gotta beat myself down so that I can build myself up in a certain way. And instead of and I'm I'm not like referring to monks or anything. Yes, they took it to like a extreme. Yeah. Sinner who needs a savior, who's been forgiven. You have to remember that this righteousness that Christ has already already accomplished has already been given to you because you are forgiven. Okay? And that should not say, oh, well, then there's no need to atone, no need to go back and ask for forgiveness. It should actually just motivate you to do so. Does It should do the exact opposite. It's kind of rejecting forgiveness. I'm so lazy, so I'm just going to set my alarm clock and write down my schedule. I'm going to do all these things and because that's what I need to do to be a better Christian, a better father, a better husband, better, all these things. Those are true. You probably should do those things. But it's not so that God can love you nor to be forgiven for anything that you've done. You can't make up for it, right? But so many times that's kind of like our mode. We just don't do it actively in our brains. You know, we're not, we're not thinking, oh, I'm going to make up for this now. But there are times where we wrong our, our wives. I can be honest about this. You're wrong. You, you say something a little offhanded to your wife. And we have to go back and we have to say, I'm sorry, babe. Can you forgive me? I was being a jerk. But that, that is not, I'm not trying to win God's favor. But some people would say, that's an evidence that I need more faith. That's an evidence that I need God's Love more. That's an evidence that I need all these things. It's true, but he's already given it to you in fullness. So stop trying to earn God's love. God's love is there. It is for you if you're a child. Um, so lean on it. Rely on it. Go to that person and ask for forgiveness to be reconciled. Reconciliation is a huge deal. And doing the will of God is how we are. We're reconciled to him by Christ, but we are reconciled to one another by doing the will of God. 